And that giant cacophony tells you, yet again, you're listening to the Powder 3 podcast. The Doctor Who podcast that likes to discuss, discourse, digest, and disagree all sorts of things about Doctor Who. And you're enjoying, hopefully, our special run of episodes for this anniversary month, in which we're looking at Doctor Who novels with at least one from each Doctor. And we are going to be enjoying, hopefully, a few more of those over the next few days, and you'll stay with us on that daily journey. I'm Kenny Smith. I'm going to be joined very shortly by my great mate of many, many years. It's that one and only, well, there's not one and only, there is another one. There's the one who was leader of the Liberal Democrat Party for many years, David Steele. But we're going to be talking to, not him, but David Steele. Hello, David Steele. Hello, Kenny Smith. What's happening? Yes, this is indeed the podcast that likes to duck and dive and um, dry and drown and drowse. I'm sat here with my copy of my thesaurus listeners <laughs> and drop and drink and dress up and celebrate Doctor Who. I'm dressing up today by wearing, wearing one of my Brian Adams crew t-shirts from last summer. Oh, very um, nice. Was that from the summer of yeah. 2022? <laughs> Yeah, we actually, listeners, mentioning of all the, the other David Steels, we'll just make, we're recording this today, gives it away how far in advance we're working on this this little burst. But we're recording this episode on the day that the sad news of the death of David McCallum broke. The other David, the other, other David Steele. <laughs> so, a split second silence and respect for Mr McCallum. But anyway, yes, as it's day three, as it's Friday, if we've got this right, we're doing a story featuring... The Sub Doctor. We're doing A Morality Tale by David Bishop, who of course lives just down the road from us in Bigger, in South Lanarkshire. Does he? Oh, I didn't know that. Marvellous. New fact. Yeah, he's a great guy. My, he's I, I really like David because um, I've known him for many, many years, having interviewed him years ago when, he, when I discovered that he lived locally and did a piece on him when he's written some of his Doctor Who books for the Hamilton Advertiser, and that was really good fun to do. And yeah, stayed in touch, great guy. And he's written some amazing non-Doctor Who books, but we'll mention them later on when we have a chat with him about some historical fiction that he's written that are murder mysteries. But we're not here to talk about those today. We're here to chat about a morality tale, an exciting adventure for the third Doctor and Sarah Jane. So Dave, with two editions of this book, could you tell us about both yeah. of them, please? Well, I'll hold them up for the benefit of our YouTube viewers. There we are. Very nice. There's the original paperback edition from 2002, featuring um, Lizzie and Jonesy on the cover. Looking looking at it now, actually, that's some astonishing Photoshop. It was also republished in 2015 as part of the History Collection, which is another little... If you remember, listeners, in 2013, BBC Books republished a few earlier original Doctor Who novels the time of the anniversary. And then they did a little monster collection, and then they did the history collection, which is an excuse to put back into print some of the better, some of the best, um, and stronger Doctor Who novels. So the reprint cover has a photograph of John Zay from the Sea Devils, but both covers have in common a photograph of St. Luke's Church, which a lot of the story focuses on. The back cover blurbs are very similar across both, so I might might read might read one now, and might read the second one later on, listeners. We'll see how we go. Sounds good to me. Okay, so here we are, the back cover blurb for the original edition in 2002. Um, in inverted commas to show some... Oh, do, I, do I attempt a John Z. P. voice? Let's, <laughs> let's see how we... <clears throat> Those people that die must die. 
It's history. It's already happened. And there's nothing we can do to prevent it, Thera. East End gangster Tommy Ramsey, no relation to mummy Andy Ramsey, emerges from prison in 1952, determined to retake control of his territory on the streets of Shoreditch. But new arrivals threaten his grip on all illegal activity in the area. An evangelical minister at St Luke's Church is persuading people to seek redemption for their sins. A new gang is claiming the streets. And a watchmender called Dr John Smith is leading a revolt against the Ramsey mob's protection racket. But when Tommy strikes back against his enemies, a far more terrifying threat is revealed. Within hours, the city's air begins turning into nerve gas and thousands are killed by the choking fumes. London is dying. And this adventure features the third Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith, and I believe is set to take place between Monster Peldon and Planet of Spiders. That's absolutely right. So for me, Dave, the big thing about this one was the historical setting, because until then, I had absolutely no idea about this event and the fact that so many people died in such horrendous circumstances. I mean, for me, it's just horrific to think that this is based in a real life event. It's sort of thing that you would make up in science fiction, but not actually think was real. I mean, I know that it's since been you know, featured in things like The Crown and of course Big Finish did their own story written by Roy Gill, which had the Fumifugium as the cause behind it. There's a great William. I remember it well. Thank you, Roy, for saying that, Fumifugium. So yeah, I think that was a really good one as well. But they can take they can both take place. There's nothing to contradict them. Yeah. I remember um thinking at the time when, when Roy's story was released, sort of thinking, right, okay, good it it's contemporaneous with, with David Bishop's one. Um the one I the Roy's episode, which I always call the one with the bus and the fog. The Creeping Death, <clears throat> to give it its proper title. I've just realised I never said that. Well, I, this was, this was I, I had some, some sort of feeling. I remember I was reading this one um, when I was working in HMV East Kilbride. I didn't read it, which means it's between tail end of 2003 and tail end of 2004 that I read it. I have a feeling that I read it around the same time that I would have read The Tomorrow Windows in Wolfsbane because I remember excitement and all that and interest was starting to build because we knew the new series was on its way at this point. How terrifying to think how long ago that was. <laughs> so my interest in Doctor Who was sort of livening up again because, you know, there was a new series and, you know, I'd heard good stuff about some of the books were coming out. So I was dipping my toes back in and this is one that I remember enjoying very much. Sarah's brilliantly written in it. The Doctor, you know, it's it's kind of pin sharp. It was kind of hard to imagine it really fitting into season 11, but that's more to do with, I think, the consistency of the Pertwee era. It doesn't really leave a lot of room for, in my mind anyway, it doesn't leave a lot of room for other stories to sort of fit in. I remember sort of Sarah's relationship with Tommy the gangster and sort of um, kind of wishing that maybe it would it would have a happy ending. And I don't mean that in a rude way. But I remember also being very, very affected by the scenes where, um, you know, the, the smog starts to thicken and, you know, basically people start to die and my, my one of my, my, ling, my sort of lingering memories and I made this sort of comparison I'm sure on the podcast before it reminded me slightly of I, I remember being reminded of certain James Herbert novels obviously there's a novel of James Herbert's called The Fog which features all sorts of horrible nastiness and stuff going on in London much much nastier than you ever get in a Doctor Who novel but just that sense of um, the capital and th- under threat and ordinary people with ordinary lives being affected. I mean, I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but there's a, there's a, I remember very clearly, and obviously, as I say, I read this book nearly 20 years ago, there's a kind of married couple um, who basically died together, and it was devastating. It was absolutely heartbreaking. 
one of the most emotive sort of Doctor Who stories. And as you say, it was almost impossible to believe that this was actually a real event. I've got a memory that maybe I asked my mum about it because we didn't really have the internet to look things up in those days. And I remember sort of just thinking it was it was such a horrible, sad thing to happen. Um, and I believe it then lead to it led to the the Clean Air Act being a thing and all this sort of stuff. It was a kind of an imperfect storm of, you know, of weather and pollution and such things. And, it, and it's a tragedy. It's awful that it happened. And it's, you know, it's it's very, very sad to think about. Yep. They don't even know how many people actually died. The, the estimated figures are between 4,000 and 12,000. Yes. It's incredible that even, you know, even now people don't know. I mean, for me, it's everything you've said there completely echo. Fantastic, the way the, that Sarah's written. But I particularly love the image of the third doctor is having a clock shop. You know, just obviously we, we can picture Billis Manger doing it in Torchwood with his yeah. horology shop. But I think there's something very you can imagine Pertwee as a as a shopkeeper like that, can't you? Just a yeah. flamboyant it's, manner. It's not sort of imagine if you like even a season eleven B, you know <laughs> something, you know, within it's it's a sort of thing would a really good setup for a run of stories of, you know, maybe for some reason the Doctor and Sarah are trapped in London twenty, thirty years earlier than the, the London they're used to. The TARDIS will repair itself, they'll be able to get back, but they have to kind of make something they're stuck there for a little while. It could have worked really, really well. You know, they could have done some some Quatermass, you know, themed stories or what have you, but it's it's a nice historical period for the and it is you know, it is a historical at this point, obviously. I mean, are we I mean, this book was published in 2002, so that was what? 20 years after. Years from now? <clears throat> um, 21 years ago, etc. So it's, it's you know, we're not quite further, we're not at the point where we're further away from when the book was published from the events, but it's, you know, it is a, it's it's a historical, however way you look at it. And even to this day, it's it seems to be something that sort of slipped from the public consciousness. It's not something that really seems to get talked about um, in the same way that, you know, Britain in a lot of ways still hasn't got over World War Two. You know, you'd think, you know, this was the sort of thing that might be kind of remembered a little bit more consciously. I mean, I suppose there was an awful lot of other stuff going on right about then, you know, the, the new Queen and all that sort of thing, which I think, to be honest, given that this was a an optimistic period in Britain's history, you know, sh- shaking off the effects of the war and all that sort of thing, to have a tragedy like this happen in the capital, maybe that's why they want to forget it, because it's, you know kind of runs against the positivity of the period. I'm not sure. Am I getting too deep on this, listeners? Comment on their Facebook page and let us know. <laughs> oh, I I agree. I think it is, it's fascinating. I think that David really writes well for people. I think you can tell he's, he's been a former journalist. He's got that attention, an eye for detail, and just that ability to understand people and how they work and I think the fact that it's got that historical setting and yes of course we do get the Zin coming in later on um, as the, the aliens but it doesn't feel crass in any way by having aliens in this no, setting at all I mean it's the sort of thing it could have it didn't really need to have the aliens I mean a story with the, the, the Doctor but I suppose they had to be there to to explain the you know the disturbance and the doc, you know they have the photograph which leads them to go back and investigate in the first place but it's it's the sort of thing that would work almost as a, a pure historical in a way, in the same way that say the massacre on television or the Peter Lou massacre that Big Finish did so well a few years ago. It's very ripe for to use a horrible word for exploitation. But I think both this story and and Roy's Big Finish story they do it very respectfully. It never feels sensationalist or voyeuristic or anything. It genuinely feels tragic. That's absolutely it. Absolutely it. I I completely agree. So I think it's maybe time we should take a little trip down the road, down the M74 from where we are, and head to the little village of Bigger. 
which is beautiful. Bigger is better. There's a great slogan for their tourist board. Yeah, it's very good. I like that. Hello, my name is David Bishop, uh, and under that name, I wrote the Doctor Who novel, A Morality Tale. First published in, checks the back of the book, uh, <laughs> 2002, and then a new edition was published in 2015 as part of the History Collection. Yeah, I have both editions, of course, because oh, of course I do, because I'm a fan. I'm a completist. I like everything. <laughs> There's a big difference in the covers of the two books as well. The, the first one has got that sort of, when they were, A Morality Tale was a rare example of where a queasy, greasy yellow cover was actually appropriate for once, whereas an awful lot of those black sheep covers in the early 2000s of Doctor Who books had a slightly ill-making <laughs> colour scheme, but for once that was entirely appropriate for the book. It definitely was with that, those peace supers of death. There's an alternative title, you can have that yeah. one for the future. <laughs> So what do you Very call kind. that, how it originally came about, getting the commission for it? Oh, it's a good question. Okay, so, I, so I've so i been editing 2008 e-comic at the back end of the 90s, and I left, I resigned and left at the end of June 2000 to go freelance, be self-employed, and I moved up to Scotland as a self-employed writer. Um, and I was... Basically, I was casting around looking for, for, for uh, writing jobs. Um, I was writing, I was still doing some comics editing freelance. I started writing a, a long running comics character called The Phantom, um, which is published by Egmont in Sweden. And I've been working for Egmont in 2008, who had been owners of it at the time. And I think I must have reached out to Justin Richards, who was, I think, uh, the, the series editor for BBC Books in the early 2000s. And we'd known each other sort of off and on through the 90s, uh, because I wrote uh, Who Killed Kennedy for Virgin Books when they had the Doctor Who license. In fact, I think it was probably one of the last Doctor Who books that they published, because that was 96 that came out. So I guess that was towards the end of their time of having the official license before Paul McGann came back um, with the Eighth Doctor and all of that happened. So I, I think I got in touch with with Justin, I'm pretty sure, and just said, well, you know, if you need somebody to write a Doctor Who novel, um, happy to happy to give it a go. And so I think that's probably how it came about. Justin can deny or uh, confirm any of these details. It is a while ago now, so the memory's a little fuzzy. So I think I was, I must have pitched him some ideas or asked him what he was looking for, where the gaps were, because he had the, obviously the Eighth Doctor novels, uh, which had a sort of, a, at that point, a fairly elaborate continuity and all sorts of things going on. But then they had the, um, they had the missing adventures, the past Doctor novels as was. And effectively, uh, if you could pitch Justin a combination of Doctor and Companion that either hadn't been done in print or hadn't been done lately in print, that always helped to uh, pique his interest because he was always looking for gaps and combinations that hadn't been done before. An A Morality Tale features the third Doctor, John Pertwee's uh, Doctor, but with Sarah Jane Smith, which at that point, I don't think anybody had done that combination, either in the in sort of the missing adventures or the past Doctor adventures or whatever they were called, first at Virgin and then at BBC Books. So, so that's, I think, this where I started from. It's a story with a fascinating background because prior to this, I'd never heard of, you know, this deadly smog in London. 
course, it's you know become a lot more better known in recent times, particularly thanks to the Crown and Big Finish mm-hmm. did the David Tennant audio said at this time, but I had never heard of this at all, and I was quite shocked. So when did you first hear about it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think sometime in the 90s, possibly. I think I, it was just a passing mention. I stumbled across looking for something else entirely. It's often the way you, as a writer, you you come across these little gems or moments of history or just these things that you've, you've never heard of and which just beggar belief. And you go, that can't be right, can it? And you lock them away in the back of the head and someday I'm going to find out more about that. There's a story to be had here. So somewhere along the way, I'd stumbled across the fact that there'd been this thing called the Great Fog or the Great Smog. I mean, London used to be notorious for pea supers, these great thick thogs that nobody could see through. But by the middle of uh, the start of the 1950s and after the war, it was a really significant problem because they still had open fireplaces in homes in London and coal fires. So people were burning coal and the, the quite, you know, what would be called dirty coal these days. Uh, with a lot of particles going up into the air and that combined in early December 1952 with a big fog that settled over the city and stayed over the city and it became this impenetrable smog and estimates vary but it's believed to be somewhere between four and 12,000 Londoners died in about three days. Now, obviously that time of year, you know, the death rate goes up um, just through illness and uh, it's colder and, and elderly, uh, unwell people will die at that time of year anyway, but the death rate just absolutely went through the roof. And as you say, uh, there's a wonderful episode, I think, in the first season of The Crown that shows um, the great smog and Winston Churchill and played by John Lithgow. And I, was, I remember watching that episode, which was many years after A Morality Tale was first published, and going, see, this is what it could have looked like if the BBC had wanted to spend all the money adapting A Morality Tale for the screen. It's basically, you know, would have cost a fortune to do. But yeah, so it was this, this moment in history that had always stuck in my head. And like, as you say, it was, it's surprisingly little known. You know, it's one of those things that as a writer, you just carry around with you, like the fact that there were riots in in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Liverpool the night after Churchill declared war on Italy in June 1940. Um, there were massive riots, anti-Catholic riots, anti-Italian riots effectively. And yeah, I mean, that's turned up in a few plays and things over the years. It's one of those stories I've always wanted to dig into more. But the, the great smog of 1952 was, I felt like it was crying out uh, for you know, so many people to die, and yet it seemed to be forgotten about, and it was within living memory, of course. And yet, you know, it got to a point where there were so many dead people, they were just piling the corpses up outside the morgues and hospitals because they didn't they didn't have capacity to store them. And funeral directors gave up trying to collect dead people. It was, it was just an incredibly grim period and short period in history. But it had a, a big impact that led to the Clean Air Act, the banning of open coal fires and in London homes, a series of, of Clean Air Acts that followed because so many people died and there was this outcry. And so it altered, you know, the nature of the air quality in London. Of course, now we get people banging on about ULEs and why it's terrible, but it's like, it's just the modern version of the Clean Air Act. I'm sorry, but there's a reason why these things need to be done. 
So I'd imagine that this would involve quite a lot of research into the causes of it, the scientific reasons behind it, and of course, just the, the effect and you know where it spread and things like that. I mean, yes, to an extent, but in reality, because I was doing it in a very small, confined area of, of the East End around uh, Old Street in Shoreditch, which of course is you know a very evocative part of London for Doctor Who fans, so actually, most of the research, I did do some research into what actually happened, but there's not that much written about it, or certainly that wasn't easily available in 2001 when I was writing the book. I didn't have access to academic archives, and I was living in Scotland, so getting easy access to London libraries in pre-digital days, also not so straightforward. But I did read a lot of social history. I did read that we were just at the start of people sort of publishing memoirs of, you know, growing up in the Gorblimey East in London kind of thing, men and women, sort of those social histories of life at the time. Um, so some of those, I read quite a few of those, and those were really helpful just to think about what life was like in December 1952 in the East End of London and round Shoreditch and Old Street, which was a pretty, you know, a poor, pretty deprived part of the city aftermath of the blitz you've still got a little bit of rationing hanging around so yeah so i did i did do a lot of research not so much into the the smog because of course an immorality tale although there is the smog which is caused by pollution it's also used by an alien enemy in order to try and seize control of of first london and then the rest of the world it's bad it's, uh, i mean i'd imagine that you must have had a ball writing for the Doctor and Sarah, given that they'd have been one of the the main sort of pairings when you were growing up and started watching the show? Yeah, I mean, I started, I first saw Doctor Who in 1974, but in New Zealand, we were running four years behind the UK. So we didn't get John Pertwee's run as the Doctor until didn't start showing in the UK until 1974, after he was already off uh, television uh, in Britain. Uh, so yeah, so the first story I ever saw was Spearhead from Space, which absolutely scared the Jesus out of me. Um, you know, I'm shot window dummies coming to life, the full works. So yeah, so so Pertwee was my first doctor, but Sarah Jane was sort of the first companion I, I properly fell in love with as, as a viewer. I always find Joe Grant a little bit drippy for my taste. <laughs> Sacrilege, I know, Katie Manning's a wonderful actor, but uh, but it's it's it was it was absolutely Sarah Jane was was my companion, and of course she carried on with the Fourth Doctor with Tom Baker. So the chance to write those two characters together was was a bit of a dream come true. And you know, Pertwee's Doctor is very distinctive voice, so you know you capture that, and you're halfway there, really. I, uh, before we started talking, I just reread the first chapter, which features uh, the Doctor dealing with a ruffian coming into his his clockmaker's shop to try and sort him out, and a little bit of the Newsian Aikido sorts him right out instead. But there's a lot of uh, I say, old chap, must be really. <laughs> the clockmaker shop setting is perfect. It's just the sort of thing you can imagine him doing, tinkering, and obviously there's all the gangs are going on outside. But uh, here he is, this sort of serene, tranquil space in the heart of it, and uh, you don't mess with them. No, no, not at all. And it's, I mean, it's slightly an odd story because it's like, you know, they they go from, I mean, well, we could argue about unit, unit dating if you really want to, but for argument's sake, they're really only jumping back in time a little more than 20 years, which is pretty atypical for a Doctor Who story. I mean, the closest I can think of is 
Delta and the Bannerman, maybe, which went from what, 86 back to the 1950s. But you don't get many sort of short hops in time because, you know, the nature of the TARDIS is such that in, in Classica, at least, that wasn't even feasible to directly attend, try and turn up in a specific time and place. But it was also, I wanted to show, you know, because certainly when Sarah Jane first presents in the final third Doctor season, she's sort of like, you know, I'm a proper journalist, I'm investigating things, you know, it's not quite so shrieky and twisting an ankle as sometimes occasionally happened later. So she was sort of, it was the idea of taking somebody who's like a 70s feminist journalist and then injecting them into early 1950s East End London where, you know, the, the roles of men and women were very much more defined. And it was just, it was just great fun to project Sarah Jane back into that situation. They have this mystery trying, they, you know, the book opens with, she finds this photo of the doctor shaking hands with a East End gangster in 1952. And she's like, how did this happen? And of course, the doctor knows it hasn't happened yet, so they have to go back and find out. They have to make history happen. So yeah, it was I, I, it was good fun to write. I got the impression that you had a lot of fun doing the East End gangsters, and sort of just getting into that sort of. We all know what they sound like or what they should sound like, so you know through the craze and things like that. So I suppose it's mm. uh, quite good fun to be able to sort of um, use your imagination and come up with versions of them and others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, yeah. It was the the Craig's film would come out what nineteen ninety or the early nineteen nineties? Was the the Kemp brothers and and all that sort of you know the Italian job and that sort of thing? We have this image of what East End London gangsters were like. And you know, although I was living in Scotland at the time, I wrote a morality tale. I'd spent ten years living in London, various parts of London, and working in London. So yeah, I found that pretty easy and fun to write yeah just enjoyable to just just play with that element of it because it's not the sort of thing you tend to see a lot of in Doctor Who as well so it was nice to bring something different to the mix yeah and talking of something different the fact that we've got a church in there religion and churches aren't something that you're hugely featured in Doctor Who over the years and here we've got a week sanctuary no exactly it's um again it's trying to come up with a combination of elements that people haven't seen before while telling a good story that's still true to the, the style and the ethos of the show but for fairly obvious reasons i mean uh, i'm trying i'm struggling to think of many priests in doctor who there are a few in classic doctor who, the demons um but yeah you don't you're going to get a lot of church-based action because obviously the bbc being the bbc doesn't want to go around defending people on the basis of faith or religion if it could possibly not do so but yeah, the Church of St. Luke's, I think it is, is is one I used to walk past. I used to work in Old Street right at the start of 1990. And I used to go and eat my lunch, sat outside this church. And at the time, it was completely derelict. The roof was falling in. And it's got this very odd sort of obelisk steeple as well, which is, you know, it's not typical of the period that it was built. But it was just completely falling apart. And I always wanted to sneak in, like jump over the fence and climb in through one of the broken windows and investigate. But I was a scaredy cat, let's be honest. Also, it looked quite dangerous. And I'm not one of these crazed hipsters who ran around urban decay documenting them all. But yeah, apparently it's all been refurbished. I think the London Symphony Orchestra was living there pre-COVID. I don't know if it's still in the building now. But they refurbished the entire building at great expense, I would imagine. But yeah, it was the chance to explain why the church had fallen into the neglect and stood there basically empty for the next however many years. 
What do you recall of the writing process? Do you remember any particular challenges or was it one that you felt went quite smoothly? It wasn't too bad, actually. My memory of it is that it wasn't too painful. I mean, I write historical thrillers now. Um, ironically, the Amorality Tale was one of my first tastes of writing historical fiction. So I write historical thrillers now set in Renaissance Florence. But for those, I'm sort of making up the whole story myself, whereas for uh, a morality tale or any of those sorts of licensed tie-in books, you need to completely plot out the story first and submit that to the editor and to the licensor as proof of concept to demonstrate that you have a complete story and you know what you're doing and they should entrust you with a contract to write the book. So actually, I'd spent quite a bit of time and effort plotting out the story, figuring all out the beats of the story, how it was going to flow, how it was going to conclude before I started writing the draft. So actually, the drafting process was pretty swift, if memory serves. I think, yeah, I, I used to set myself a word budget of 4,000 words a day so I could write a first draft in a month. But obviously, I pre-planned the entire story, so it was just like add dialogue and description and away you go. The story's already been created. These days when I write my Cesare Aldo books, they're, um, I write a lot slower because I am having to invent it all as I go along. I don't massively pre-plot anymore. I've had more than 20 novels published at that point, at this point, so you think, well, I kind of know what I'm doing. I will trust the fact that a good idea will occur. And mostly it does. <laughs> thing that I most remember, you know, about reading the book originally was the atmosphere of it. And I think it's, you know, we could relate to it. It's the sort of thing, we know what London streets look like, you know, for, through things like Quatermass, we can imagine, you know, the period time, particularly Quatermass in the pit, and we know what the fog looks like. And it's just that, that imagery just absolutely lends itself. And it's perfect Doctor Who imagery, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I remember servers. There was one reviewer of it online at the time where we were just starting to get online reviews, and I think somebody objected to the fact that I turned policemen into zombie killer weapons of the of the aliens because I needed an army and I needed somebody that I needed a visible foe. So I think zombie policemen got the job. If memory serves, it's a while since I've read the book. Let's be honest. Yeah, it did feel like. It was the sort of story that if the, that I could have I could imagine them having filmed it in the 1970s, and actually it wouldn't have been too difficult to do in the 1970s. You know, you think about things like invasions of the dinosaurs. You know, you just find a Sunday morning and go out and start filming effectively guerrilla style, and then you know have a load of uh, mist and, and smoke and fog just to to cover up things. So yeah, I was sort of trying to do something that felt of the period and appropriate for the period. But it was sort of thing, if they had filmed it, it would have cost, to do it properly, it would have cost them a lot of money to do, which is, you know, that's the joy of a book, is you have the capacity to turn the budget up to Game of Thrones, effectively. <laughs> Whereas, you know, 1970s Doctor Who, you know, the budget was not much more than Bagpuss at the time, so. <laughs> oh, I love Bagpuss. I used to always cry at the end. I always thought he died when he went into black and white. And I'd, I got oh. daily, daily trauma with that. Uh, my sister was the same about The Incredible Hulk. It got to the point we had to ban, we had to pretend they stopped making it because she got so upset at the end where, you know, Dr. Banner had to walk away on his own for the umpteenth time. Yeah. yeah. Five seasons worth of that, plus a host of TV movies in the early 90s. No, uh, I can oh, yes. live without that. I know far too much about the Hulk TV show. Anyway, the thing that I also remember is that so many good reviews, because I remember when we used to go to the pub, the Doctor Who group, and this was one that became an instant favourite with all of us. 
and I was having a quick look through online reviews in DWM at the time and very, very positive reviews for it. That must have been, you know, a good feeling getting that, you know, for all the effort that you put in and then you get that positive feedback. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, it was my second Doctor Who novel, my second proper Doctor Who. I'd written a fan novelization of The Pirate Planet back when I was still in New Zealand before I immigrated. And then I wrote Who Killed Kennedy for, for Virgin Books, uh, or that was always, you know, filed under miscellaneous in any review of Doctor Who books ever. Slightly frustrating. But yeah, so it was, it was, I felt like I'd done a, I, I felt like I'd done a pretty good job of a morality tale. I felt it, it hung together quite well, actually. And, and the review, I remember the review in DWM was quite generous and there was a, a wonderful cartoon to accompany it that Roger Langridge had, had drawn, which was really good. Sadly, I, I didn't, I was too slow to buy the original artwork of it, which is always frustrating for me. But yeah, no, it was, it was nice that it was so well, well received. Of course, the book I wrote after that was a bit of a dog, but there we go. You can't win them all. Oh dear. And of course, as you mentioned at the top, you managed to get a reprint a few years later. That must have been a, a pleasant surprise for you. It was wonderful, actually. Yeah. I can't remember who reached out to me. It was Justin or, or somebody from BBC Books who are now owned by Random Penguin, whoever it is these days. But um, yeah, they, they got in touch and to say, because they've been doing a, they've been doing a, a reprint series a, a clutch of books and I think they'd done two years of it and then they did the history collection and they wanted one from each of the 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 first eight doctors and yeah somebody got in touch said they wanted to do a morality tale you know would I write a new introduction I was like absolutely please that's great it's great to see it back in print and they did an ebook of it which obviously hadn't existed when it first came out and they did an audio book as well read by the wonderful Dan Starkey who we mostly know as a Sontaran from the from the tenant years and he did a great job. He had great fun doing all the a ver- a variety of gruff East End accents for all the gangsters and their henchmen. So no, it was, you know, getting a book back into print that's been out of print for a long time. It's like, hey, thank you very much. It was even talk fleetingly of, of doing an audiobook version of Who Killed Kennedy after that, which would have been perfect because it's in the first person, which makes it a really easy job for the, for the narrator. But sadly, hasn't happened yet. Maybe one day. We live in hope. We live in hope. It seems like you've got an awful lot of affection for it, just thinking back about it now. I do, yeah. I I think it holds up really well. And also, it's one of the rare examples of a book I've written that kept the same title from the beginning of the process to the end. I've had an awful lot of books of mine where the editorial or the sales and marketing team have said, hmm, yes, that's an interesting idea. We're going to call it this. But a morality tale kept its title from from the first pitch right through to the end of the process. If you consider that I wrote a Peter Davison Fifth Doctor novel two years later, and I wanted to call it Metempsychosis, which I thought was a very Christopher Bidney kind of title, <laughs> and they were like, "No, no, nobody knows what that means." I was like, "Oh yeah, everybody knows what Castro Belva means," but uh, they decided to call it Empire of Death instead always just felt a little bit on the nose for me but hey sales knows best so <laughs> and of course you mentioned earlier that you've been writing your own historical novels of late could you maybe tell us a wee bit about them oh absolutely so yeah so as uh using the pen name d v bishop uh the v stands for volmer which was my grandfather's surname yes i write a series of historical thrillers set in renaissance florence featuring a character called cesare aldo 
who is a who's an investigator for the most feared and powerful criminal court in the time of the Medici. And what makes him a, a sort of a more complicated character is the fact that he's a gay man at a time and place in history where that was potentially punishable by execution, uh, depending upon you know what the nature of the laws were at the time that you were if you were arrested for that. So he's a, he enforces the law, but his sexuality means that he lives outside the law at the same time. I've had three novels in the series published so far by Pam Macmillan. Um, City of Vengeance is the first one. The second one, The Darkest Sin, which is like a, a locked murder mystery in a nunnery, uh, won the Crime Writers Association Historical Dagger a couple of months ago, which was a wonderful surprise and completely unexpected, actually. And then the third one came out summer of 2023. It's called Ritual of Fire. And I've just handed in the fourth one, which is called A Divine Fury and features uh, serial killer and exorcisms. So uh, back to church again for me. <laughs> well, that's me hooked. And of course, David, where can people find out um, more about the books and find you on social media? So I am, my author website is dvbishop.com. On Twitter or X or whatever it's called, by the time this goes out, I am at David Bishop because I joined so early, I got my own name. I am one of those freaks. Um, and over on Instagram, I am at Cesare Aldo, which is C-E-S-A-R-E-A-L-D-O. Uh, yeah, that's, I think I'm at Cesare Aldo on most of the socials now, of which there seems to be a new platform every week. <laughs> Yeah, whether it's Blue Sky or Mastodon or... Or Threads or yeah. Spoutable or... Oh, the list goes on. I, every time a new social media turns up, I go, right, I'll just go and claim my name or try and claim my name. And then I'll just ignore it until it actually becomes whatever people are doing. So, yes. Yeah. You're basically a cyber squatter then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. shameless. Yeah, that's me. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. I should do that sometime. Anyway. David, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much and best of luck with book four when it comes out next summer. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And as David just mentioned there, Dave, the book did get a reprint and you mentioned it earlier and it even got an audio release as well. So why don't we hear a little clip from that as read by Dan Starkey. The doctor decided that debating the nature of right and wrong was getting him nowhere. He had to use the only language the Ixin understood. Threats. I didn't want to have to resort to your methods. I thought we could resolve this peacefully. I now see that you are intent on destroying this world and all its species. So, let me say this. I am sworn to protect this planet and its people. If you continue on this course of action, I will have no alternative but to destroy you all. You may consider this a first and final warning. There was a curious noise in his mind, like metal rasping against metal. The doctor realized it was the Exin expressing mirth. You warn us, you would destroy us. How? I am not of this world, the doctor said, but I have saved it before, and no doubt I shall save it again. We know you are alien. We sense your presence. That is why we permitted this meeting. That is why we tested you. The room without a door. The illusion. The killing chamber. You murdered these people just to test me? The doctor asked. Why? To see where your allegiances would be. To test your attitude to these primitives. Who are you? I am the doctor. 
a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey. My own people are a highly advanced and powerful force for good in the galaxy. The Ixin would do well not to risk our wrath. We know of the Time Lords. It is true about your technological advancement, but your species is weak, impotent, unwilling to intervene. You present no threat to the Ixin. In time, your world shall be as this one, a colony of the Ixin. Never! I will stop you using any means necessary, the Doctor pledged. I have a weapon that can destroy you all. Withdraw from this world, or I shall unleash this nemesis. You lie. You, you cannot deceive this sin. You have no such weapon, or you would have used it already. The doctor smiled bleakly. That's the difference between us. I give you a chance to leave. You simply destroy to get your way. The Xin like to think of themselves as missionaries, colonists, a noble species bringing civilization to primitives. In fact, you are just thieves and murderers, plundering and pillaging your way across the galaxy. He looked down his nose haughtily at the circling triumvirate. You deserve no pity, and you will have none from me. Bravado, deception, self-delusion. The Ixin all pointed at the doctor simultaneously. His limbs became heavy as lead, unable to move. He strains just to stay standing, but the pressure proved too much forcing him downwards into a crouch. He pressed a hand to his chest, his face ashen. My heart! Thanks for that, Dan the Man. Even though you didn't actually know it was being featured, but thanks, Dan. Great guy. <laughs> so yeah, Dave, could you tell us what the reprint back cover says, just to be completest? Absolutely. On the back, there's the, the line, the sort of pull-out quote that was used for all of the historical collections, um, the line says, the doctor's a legend woven throughout history. The blurb reads, when gangster Tommy Ramsey is released from prison, he is determined to retake control of his East End territory. But new arrivals threaten his grip on illegal activity in the area. An evangelical minister is persuading people to seek redemption for their sins. And a watchmender called Smith is leading a revolt against the Ramsey mob's protection racket. When Tommy strikes back at his enemies, a far more terrifying threat is revealed. Within hours, the city's air turns into nerve gas thousands succumb to the choking fumes. London is dying. And we're told in its adventure set in 1950s London, featuring a third doctor played by John Pertwee and his companion Sarah Jane Smith. So, yeah, broadly speaking, tells you the same information, but some sort of um, simplified slightly. Yeah, it is. And it was also past Doctor Adventure number 52, which I omitted to mention earlier. Now, we've enjoyed it, but Shall I tell you what they said in I Who Volume 3, the unauthorised guide to Doctor Who novels and audios? And I have to say, it's, they've taken a different take to us because I remember this getting really good reviews in Doctor Who magazine and other publications at the time. However, I Who weren't quite so enamoured. They are wrong. Uh-oh. Entertaining of woefully slight in parts. A Morality Tale sets up a nice cast neatly placing the Doctor and Sarah alongside the promising gangster, Tommy Ramsey. However, it slits its own gullet for its generic science fiction elements, notably the -the run-of-the-mill Zinn and their simplistic desire to overrun Earth. Also, it's not as if the London smog die-off of 1952, that's a bit harsh, die-off, was a mystery that particularly needed solving. We'll grant that amorality tale has foundation, but it needs a house atop it. And isn't it a shame that David Bishop, author of the investigative Who Killed Kennedy, didn't put Sarah Jane's journalist skills to greater use? 
This is what I say to that review. <laughs> I I agree. Yes. Um. So if you know how to spell that, you can write it on our Facebook page. That's how it's Billy Cobb. Okay. Um. That's a bit harsh. I think it's. I think the whole point of this, they've missed the point. The whole point of the story is the tragedy of the of what happened in 1952. The the fact that the sin or the aliens aren't the most exciting one is kind of irrelevant. It's not the point, really. Yep. And it's, it's a people's story. Yeah, very much so. And I think it absolutely succeeds at that on that level. Yeah. So I think given that, let's have a quick vote. So people who like the story, put your hands up. Yep. Me, mm-hmm. you, people who didn't. Oh, I who's put its hand up. So two one, it wins. It's a good yeah. book. We win. <laughs> and let's be honest if it hadn't if it wasn't a good one if it wasn't one of the stronger ones they wouldn't have reprinted it for the history collection so you know exactly. the fact you can't do the fact yep you can't <laughs> rewrite history Dave not one single line absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so there we go unlike, unlike what modern showrunners might tell you listeners said the old man sh- sh- shaking his fist and shouting at the cloud blah blah anyway oh dear oh well this is definitely one that I, I I would consider giving a reread. Talking horror stories, I could also tell by the cracked spine, the va- the slightly cracked spine on this one. This is one that I I let my mum at one point. Oh. And you know, Mama Steele isn't doesn't have the same regard for paperback novels as some of us might have. <laughs> yeah, you and I, for example, dear oh dear. That's the great thing about this the series going back and revisiting these old books and. You know, happy memories, and it's funny how much you do remember, even though you may not have opened it in a wee while. Absolutely, as I say, very clear memories when I read this one. I remember at the same time making an attempt. I say, read Tomorrow Windows, Wolf Spain. Um, did I make an attempt on Earthworld at this point? When was I reading Escape Velocity? No, Escape Velocity must have been a few years earlier than that, I think, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. But Earthworld was the chronological yeah. next book after that. Yeah, I mean, at this point, um, this point I was really just dipping in and out. I mean, towards the end of the time I worked in HMV Scobride, I remember reading The Indestructible Man, which, because I was reading that when I finished it, Clyde, sorry, when I finished EK before I, sh- and I, I remember still reading it when I'd started in HMV Clyde Banks. So that must have been kind of, that was towards the end of 2004. I'll need to have a look through the shelves and try and remember which other ones I read at that time. Listeners, if you haven't read The Indestructible Man by our pal Simon Merton, you pure should, it's cracking, especially if you're a Jerry Anderson fan. Oh, it's a brilliant book. And um, well, obviously we would have featured it yesterday if we hadn't featured Simon in another episode that's still to come. But which one could it be? Ooh, get speculating, listeners. Interesting. Listeners, you probably won't be surprised to learn we're not recording these in the order they're going out. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I'm going to those... try and keep a note of the order that we do them just so that... See, but see, see if you can tell which part of the day... Um, we recorded them by how awake and alert I seem to be. <laughs> yeah. That would be yes. At least there it's fair go. to say we can say that episode one was the first one we recorded in order, but then um seven, yeah. then six, and then this one is our fourth one. So we're all over the blooming shop, but we're having fun doing it. It's gotta be done. Absolutely. Yeah. So tomorrow it'll be it'll be day number four and doctor number four. Which book are we reading? Aha. You'll have to tune in and find out. You will indeed. So, hope you've enjoyed today's throwback to a morality tale. Thanks, to David, again for his time. And I, I suppose it's, it's time for us to dematerialize shortly. But, Dave, there's still one more thing we need Ken, to do. Ken, 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 Ken. What are we going to play? And I hope it's nice and respectful, given that it's quite a quite a sad, somber story.
Well, I was thinking... Hope you're not going to say something too over the top here. Well, I was thinking that it would be appropriate, given the setting of the story in which city it is, I thought The Clash's London Calling might be appropriate. That'll do. If it works for the... If it's good enough for The Conjuring 2, it's good enough for The Power, for the power of 3. <laughs> Excellent. See you tomorrow, everyone. London calling to the faraway towns Now war is declared and battle come down London calling to the underworld Come out of the cupboard, you boys and girls London calling, now don't look to us Phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust London calling, see we ain't got no swing Except for the rain and the crunch of things the ice is coming, the sun's zooming in Meltdown expected, the wheat is going in Engines stop running, but I have no fear Cause London is drowning I live by the river To the imitation zone Forget it brother, you can go in alone London calling to the zombies of death Quit holding out and draw another breath London calling And I don't want to shout But while we were talking I saw you nodding out London calling See we ain't got no high Except for that one With the yellowy eyes The ice age is coming The sun's zooming in Engines stop running The wheat is going thick A nuclear error But I have no fear Cause London is drowning